This is the DX Podcast, proudly presented by Wondrous. In this episode, Peter talks with Tom Miskin, the founder of Chop Chop Studios. Well, hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the DX Podcast. Um, Today, I welcome Tom Miskin from Chop Chop Studios. Hi, Tom. Hey, Peter. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, and you're sitting in uh, beautiful Amsterdam. I am indeed, where the sun is shining, which makes an incredibly pleasant change. But you're not originally from Amsterdam, is that right? <laughs> no, that's right. No, I'm from the UK originally, as you can probably tell from my northern accent. Um, so I lived in the UK since Zip, and I moved to Amsterdam eight years ago. Uh, so I've been here for quite a while now. It wasn't the plan. The plan was to keep moving east and eventually be living in Shanghai and Tokyo, such was the dream. But I got as far as Amsterdam, <laughs> which is not very far at all. Uh, that's that's yeah. certainly not very far compared to Shanghai or Tokyo. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and that was genuinely the plan as well. I, I, I'd done a couple of small projects there a few, well, I guess it's 10 years ago now. So I had a, a complete plan to keep moving east and eventually circumnavigate uh, the globe. You know, John Lennon said the best way to make God laugh is to tell him your plans. <laughs> uh, so you're having a good old laugh at me because I, I got as far as Amsterdam. Can you um, just kind of take quickly take us through um, how, how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. So, so, the, so the quick version, I studied social anthropology and then followed up with a master's in it's called digital media, technology and cultural form. So like any good arts grad, I really had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do uh, professionally, but I knew I was interested in culture and people and the way in which those things intersect with technology and, and how that evolves. And it's actually lost in the midst of time because it was about 15 years ago. I, I think a friend just told me, hey, you should, there's this thing called digital media planning. You should check it out. And I got incredibly lucky especially given what's going on today. I, I turned up for an interview at a digital media agency and their client was called the COI, which is Central Office Information, which in the UK is basically the government and all branches of the government. Mm-hmm. And in those days, they were the biggest UK online ad spender. So essentially I arrived at an agency that was growing as fast as they could hire people, um, was offered a job at the end of the interview. So extraordinarily lucky to be starting out at that time. Well, lucky or just right time, right place, right? Yeah, I was very much in the right time at the right place, which I think is, is yeah. I mean, because I, I mentor quite a lot of junior uh, folks and folks who are trying to get into sort of the strategy world today. And so I look at what's happening today and what they're going through. And then I compare to what I went through and it's not even, it doesn't bear comparison. So that's why I consider it really lucky. Um. So I did that for a few years and then I started going to lots of meetings with other people who are also called strategists and their jobs seemed way more interesting than mine and they were strategists at uh, creative agencies, basically. I thought that looks way more fun. So after many, many coffees and meeting people and you seem lovely, but you know, uh, I was eventually again in the right place at the right time and someone resigned a couple of days after I had my interview. They called me back and said, would you like to come in? So I spent a few years working at digital creative agencies as a as a strategist, learning a lot about how to basically get things made. And then I reached 30 
uh, and this goes back to the discussion we were just having, and I, I kind of thought, okay, if I, I'd lived in the north of England and the south of England, and that was it. But I'd traveled the world, and so I knew I'd like to go and live some, some of the country and culture before it was too late. And uh, uh, found this role in Amsterdam, working for an agency called AKQA, which when I moved was basically a digital creative agency, I would say. And then when I left four and a half years later, it was the company you see today, which is much more product service innovation, business transformation, moved much further upstream as a business. When I joined, there was no UX team. When I left, it was the biggest uh, team in the agency. So that's a sense of the transition that will happen there. Uh, and then what happened next? I spent one year at an ad agency, which was a fascinating experience. Uh, ultimately taught me that maybe that's not the world for, for me, but I did learn <laughs> a lot about brands and the power of global brands and, and brilliant stories told really well. And they're an amazing, lovely team there. And then I was asked to help set up the European arm of a New York-based innovation consultancy called Sylvain Labs uh, with a, another lady. And together we, we kind of founded a, a small office for, for the consultancy, brought in a few clients and a couple of extra team members. And then I've almost finished a year, just over a year ago, I decided it was time to go out and do my own thing. So I started my own little studio called Chop Chop Studios, which I've been running ever since. I started on April 1st, so April Fool's Day. So still trying to find out if the joke's on me or not. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so it's a, a digital and strategy uh, studio uh, that was, was just beginning to take flight, actually. And then the whole COVID thing happened and is now in uh, kind of survival's a bit traumatic, but just more steady state kind of place. Um, yeah, that brings us to today, a potted history. <laughs> well, as, as we were discussing before, I mean, like, um, uh, who in this industry has that kind of straight... Um, trajectory through their career mm. um, not many I think nowadays and um, you know people that are looking for that challenge in this in this very kind of uncertain industry they will have had challenges within their own um, kind of career tra trajectory anyway so um, interesting but yeah. thanks for that uh, quick review of your yeah. um, of your past yeah. um, innovation I what does it mean for you, really, um, innovation itself? Uh, there are lots of different opinions out there on, on what it actually is mm. and, and what it should mean. Um, you know, there, there are different, like, it could be a service, it could be a product. It, um, what, does it, what does it mean to you? Yeah, it's become a very tricky word, hasn't it? Um, I think what I want it to mean is helping companies invent the future. Uh, which is this kind of a line I've slightly stolen from AKQA. They they use a similar sentiment, um, but at its essence, that's where I want to be. Like I think innovation work is exciting and relevant when it generally feels like you're helping a company um, create something that's net new for them and their business, and helping them really explore something. Um, I think it can. You're, you're kind of picking at a point, which is that there's lots of different types of, in inverted commas, innovation. And it hugely matters whether you're a giant, you know, globally scaled enterprise or whether you're a startup of 10 people and what innovation means, how it's applied, how you create it, how you execute it will be hugely different and should be, you know, beyond between those scales. Um, um, does that necessarily have anything to do with digital itself? 
do you think? Or yeah, could it be something that's completely detached to digital for, for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, actually, I see it. I think it's still true within digital in the sense that so taking a step back, the, the type of innovation work I do and I've been thinking about a lot recently has become less and less about, let's say, digital in the context of this discussion and more and more about people and organizations. Um, because I work with a lot of either scaled or, let's say, super scaled companies. So really, really big, you know, distributed global organizations. And the question around the topic of innovation there is not so much about technology, although that is very important, or let's say it's it's an even balance between technology and organizations. So politics, processes, um, enabling groups of people to do new things in a way that's um, accepted and uh, integrated within the overall organization, building cultures of behavior um, that enable people to go and do that those are really the the topics that I've spent the last 12 months spending more time with than you know the pure technological aspect of what's possible with digital and the impacts of that even though that's always very important and, and integral to the conversation but I think as you as you start to deal with bigger and bigger organizations the the questions become more and more about the people and the organization itself when it comes to innovation uh, as loosely defined as as, as I've defined it but would you say it's it's, it's um, your role as as an innovator would be more about facilitating as well between these different parts within an organization? Yeah, I think the the word that I keep coming back to is alignment, which is a very boring word. Um, but the the way that I try to create alignment is actually got a lot to do with storytelling. Um, so there's a the role of strategy within kind of the innovation process, I think, is helping um, create the right story and language that you can take people from around the world, um, from, a, from a distributed organization, from different departments, and have them all say, yes, that's what we should do. Um, which sounds incredibly basic, but it's actually, I think, very difficult. Um, and it's a, a certain type of skill set to be able to create that type of storytelling and attach that to lots of other very important things like roadmaps and rollouts and, and other you know concrete technical things um, but actually being able to help an organization all agree on something and then commit to action and then actually doing it um, <laughs> it doesn't sound super innovative but actually it's really really important in in making any kind of innovation happen of course, I mean, you one of one of your main methodologies would would be um, facilitating workshops as well, right? Which is yeah. also about aligning these different um, stakeholders. Yeah, yeah, the workshop a key tool really in in making that stuff happen, and it's been very interesting watching that all of that transition to a, a COVID world. I actually, made a, a kind of a, a masterclass guide to how to design and structure strategic workshops. Uh, the, and put the finishing touches it, to it pretty much as like lockdown happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another <laughs> fantastic piece of timing. Um, so I decided I just gave it away. You can find it online. Uh, but yeah, I, I, the, bringing people together previously in a room and hopefully sometime not too soon again in a room, but for the time being, obviously not. And getting them aligned on, um, you know, 
uh, even just something as simple as an experience flow or a journey or a set of customer needs is, can be massively illuminating and helpful and can bring that alignment that you really need to get people working together, which is really a lot of yeah what we end up doing. And, and so what kind of methodologies would you see yourself using in these in these workshops? Would it be like design thinking and, and would you use... Um, I don't know, um, some of the methods from the design sprints kind of uh, um, uh, from that world or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's another great question. I We don't, at the studio, we don't have a, a process. And this is something I also stole from my one of my previous roles, this idea of not having a process. I remember being, quick anecdote, I was hired into my last role at Sylvan Labs and I asked Alain, who's the founder, uh, when we were discussing if I would join and I said, oh, what's the process? And he said, oh, we don't have a process. And I thought, okay, fair enough. And then when I actually joined, I was like, I sort of took him aside and said, okay, cool, but you know, what's the process? And he was like, no, we don't have one. And the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the theory being that you create a toolkit with hundreds of processes and methodologies. Uh, and then when the client comes to you, you figure out what is the problem we're trying to solve. And then you select, you know, from your toolkit, um, what's the what appropriate tool or methodology or framework or process will best solve this problem? And that's something I, I wholeheartedly agree with and have carried on to to this day. So all the things you mentioned, you know, design thinking is a I think a wonderful methodology applied for the right problem at the right time. Um, design sprints again, I think, are a wonderful way of uh, quickly getting to a testable prototype. You know, if that's if the question is, we need to test an assumption as quickly as possible you know, with as little friction as possible, then the design sprint is absolutely perfect. Is it the solution to everything? As maybe some people might think, no, prob probably not. Um, mm. So I try to be super agnostic about these types of methodologies. I think both the ones you mentioned are, are, are fantastic tools applied to the right kind of problem. And we, we steal liberally from, from both of them. <laughs> uh, copy, copying, stealing, um, I don't know. Call it steal like an artist. It, I think um, but that that makes so much sense, and and you know, thanks for shedding some light on that. Uh, there's there's um, people out there, um, you know, that talk about like why why do we need strategies? Why don't we just do stuff? Um, yeah. and rather than talking about strategy all day long, let's just try it out and see it, see how it works out. And and um, you know, so all this uh, ideology around um, you know rapid prototyping and failing forward and and mm. uh, not spending too much money before actually realizing oh this was a really crappy idea and let's <laughs> let's uh, chuck that one in the bin and then you know, maybe out of the the 10 rapid prototypes that you've created two of them are fantastic um but you've you've only uh wasted um you know a, a not too much time on on the other eight things that are, that are then chucked in the bin yeah yeah and i think there's a there's there's something to be said for that i mean as i've been a strategist my entire career of, of some <laughs> stripe or another um, so I'll, I'll, I'll defend the use of strategy briefly. Um, I, I think definitely, you, you know, death by strategy and spending too much time in PowerPoint is, is absolutely not the right thing to do. Um, I, I do think that, I mean, again, going back to the world, I often find myself in this world of, of very big companies trying to figure out what to do and to do it efficiently. I think in that context, there's a lot to be said to spending a bit of time, not too much, figuring out why you're doing what you're doing and what you actually want to achieve and, and what that will realize for the business. 
because if you're kind of clear on some of that stuff up front, which sounds really simple, like they're all very simple questions to pose, often quite difficult to answer. Mm-hmm. If you have fairly good answers, then I think you can save a lot of time, heartache, energy, money further down the line because you have a, a, you know, a guiding framework for decision making, saying, exactly. you know, yes, more of this and less of that, please. Uh, so I think there's still a there is still value in that type of strategic work, but certainly you don't want to be one of the PowerPoint jockeys that's a professional meeting haverer. That's, that's well, talking no about PowerPoint, um, that's, that's also one of your specialities, um, is, is create, <laughs> creating a beautiful DEX. Um, and you're not a, a designer yourself, um, but you, the, the, the DEX that you uh, put out there, and, and uh, you also have some, uh, I think, uh, online um, courses on how to create um, the, like, uh, the perfect DEX. Um, yeah. Any thoughts, uh, like how how you got there? I mean, a lot ha- obviously has to do also with the point that you probably have to pitch an idea quite often, mm-hmm. and that you've probably um, created this this uh, secret potion um, to to this to the perfect pitch, I guess, um, after pitching so many times. Um, any thoughts behind that? Yeah, so I remember discovering the concept of the S curve of learning. So this idea that you start learning something and you're horrible at it and you have no idea what you're doing and everything feels frightening and, and terrible. And then you have a kind of rapid acceleration in your ability and understanding until you get to a kind of plateau. And you, okay, I've, I've now learned this new skill, I will move on to the next thing. And I think that's a, a fascinating, like I've a, maybe retrospectively actually, but kind of apply that to my entire career. Like a media, then creative, then platform, then consultancy, then my own studio. And in a sense, those are all S-curves. You know, all things that you you look around for something you don't understand fully and then go and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and design was just another one of those S-curves. And I actually remember specifically my boss at, uh, where was this? AKQA. And as a strategist, obviously, you have to give a lot of presentations and mine looked terrible. And he, <laughs> he was a very forthright Kiwi guy. And he was like, it's just not good enough. I was like, but there's designers. He was like, no, you've just got to get good at this. And I was like, oh, well, okay. And from that moment, just became super intentional about design. And the great thing about design is it's everywhere. It's not like, um, I don't know, uh, calculus or something where the barrier to entry is super high. And if you can't get past step one, you're kind of screwed. It's like design is absolutely everywhere and you can copy it. And you can, I think, become not as good as design designers, obviously, but you can become more than competent at design just by being super intentional about it, mm-hmm. which is what I did for the last uh, yeah five or six years. And just kind of by obviously stealing like an artist from many of my <laughs> designer friends and colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, gradually got, got half decent at, at cranking out a, a, a good looking um, presentation. I can't believe that a forthright Kiwi was so relevant for your pitch deck um, uh, career. Uh, same yeah. with me as well. Um, I had a, a very important Kiwi in my life who was uh, um, very relevant for creating pitch decks back in the day. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Stick around, Kiwis, if you want to learn something about yeah, pitch decks. yeah, definitely. Shout cool. out for Matt Bain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, forthright Kiwi. Talk, Talking about Matt, um, uh, your your previous um, was he your boss? I don't. Um, he was the MD uh, at okay. Amsterdam. So, so um, yeah. So he seemed like an important person for you at the time. Mm. Are there any other um, people kind of in your career that you feel um, put you on the path that you're on? Um, 
mentors, bosses, yeah, um, colleagues, professors. Yeah, oh wow. Okay, that's a long. <laughs> that's suddenly become a. That's suddenly become a much longer list. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I guess everyone. Everyone has their own uh, their mark on you, right? They, everyone touches you in some way, and and pushes you off in a slightly different direction i mean the really concrete ones um obviously like matt hired me into matt and uh, lawrence parks who's now um ceo in fact at rufus leonard was cso so one of those rare creatures that made the switch from strategy to actually leading an org uh, so those guys hired me into amsterdam so that was a huge change for me you know it's moving countries moving agencies and kind of in my career that was the moment when I'd kind of gone from fairly, you know, junior midweight to more senior. I also went to what I think is probably the best or one of the best, um, like digital innovation shops in the world. So the sort of level of professionalism of the work and the atmosphere and the culture all was a big step change. So, so those guys had it had a huge impact. Um, and I think also my my last actual boss, Ellen. So Ellen Sylvain, who's the founder of Sylvain Labs. Um, He's a really unique, amazing person. Um, and he hired me into help set up that office and really took quite a big chance in a way on me because, you know, we weren't in the same time zone or geography, obviously. And I kind of came recommended, if you like. So he knew uh, Katie, who I founded the office with um, well, but me not so much. So kind of took a bit of a risk in what was a big um, moment decision and then was super supportive of me helped me was super cool when I wanted to start my own studio you know he he's an entrepreneur and so recognized that kind of um that spark, desire, if you like yeah, exactly, and was yeah. super cool about helping um so yeah I think those those three amongst yeah a million others that I'm sure I'm forgetting my first ever boss he was amazing he was taught me how to write short emails that weren't full of unnecessarily complicated anthropological words <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah those 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 guys really made a big difference in my career so tom tell me about the perfect project or like what what would your dream if if they were to call tomorrow um yeah. and say this is it and and you'd this is and you'd be saying okay this is what i've been waiting for what would that be here's a blank check no <laughs> <laughs> um, and as much time uh, as you want <laughs> <laughs> well actually I, yeah maybe not that because then i would procrastinate until yeah. the deadline um oh. yeah that's a great question as well i mean first of all the dream project would be with dream people mm -hmm. i actually really look to work with or hope to work with great people as much as great i would take brilliant people with a boring project over brilliant project for terrible people every day of the week um, okay. and that's something that's great to have as a luxury now of, of running your own studio you know i can choose hopefully most of the time who who i'm gonna work with um mm -hmm. but a dream project would be anything really that's looking at how do we harness the connection between technology and our customers or users to create something genuinely new mm -hmm. and useful Okay. Uh, for our, our users i think in that space when you're thinking about people uh, primarily so it's not technology for technology's sake it's technology that will make a real difference for human beings mm -hmm. um, and that hopefully will leave the world a slightly better place than it finds it 
that's a that's for me a dream project. And then they say, here's a blank check, and how long would you like, <laughs> how long would you would you like to do this in? Have Have you had any projects that you've worked on that you're that you're kind of close to? This is the perfect project. Uh, anything that you can talk about? So yeah, I think so. I did a project with um, Dow Regberts, who are uh, a, a Netherlands-based CPG company owned by Mondelez, um, and they really wanted to explore how future changes in um, mobility would impact their complete business model. And for me, that's a super fascinating project because you're really going out into the future. You're really looking at how. You think things will change and building you know concrete scenarios for your uh, uh, research and intuition about how that will happen and then you're really looking you know you're not just looking at a discipline like marketing or product or innovation you're really looking across their complete business model the complete stack of their company if you like mm -hmm. and thinking about okay well if there's going to be these upcoming waves of change in mobility how will that affect the way you produce your product how will it affect the way you distribute your product how will it affect the way people find your product how will it affect the way you might market your product and and kind of looking at that complete picture of their entire business sort of unbundled um, and then essentially what we did was we took those waves of of change we looked at their complete business stack and we basically mapped them so we said, okay, so for this aspect of your business against this third wave of change of mobility, let's say autonomous, we think the implications are X, Y, Z and the opportunities therefore are you know, ABC and the potential business and service models we could spin up off the back of that might be. Blah, blah, blah. So there's a really interesting connection between sort of super rigorous database, you know, crunching work and then super creative um, what's possible let's imagining something net new across all these different scenarios. Mm -hmm. So that for me is, a, that was a super fun and interesting project that was you know, robust, but imaginative, <laughs> I think. Was anything implemented out of that project? I'm sorry, say again? Was anything actually executed from that project? No, not yet, because it was very future gazing. So it was okay. five, 10, yeah. 15 year okay. uh, time yeah. horizons. And oh, wow. we ran it like four, four or five months ago. <laughs> so oh, gosh, unless they've okay. done something really fast, yeah. which I don't know about, then <laughs> no. And this was really, they, you know, they wanted a, not a roadmap, but essentially we built a kind of map of future implications for their entire business model over the next 5, 10, 15 years. So, so fairly speculative, because once you get to 15 years out and you're talking about things like autonomous logistics and last mile drone delivery, then you're, you're getting further and further into design fictions and futures work. Mm -hmm. uh, but very interesting for them to put their whole team around it you know we built this huge map that you could put on a wall <laughs> again totally redundant now um, yeah. but was was brilliant then because you could just bring people from all sorts of different disciplines in their business and stand them in a room and say here's what we think might happen in 10 years 15 years and therefore what might that mean for you tomorrow in terms of the conversations you're having the people you're working with the partners you have uh, that's a that's a really interesting way of helping people just lift their um, gaze a bit further into the future, but without it just becoming like arm wavy sort of trends work, which I think a lot of stuff in this space can be, uh, which, yeah, we made it much more sort of concrete and tangible, I think, which makes it easier for people to spark thoughts and ideas about what they'll actually do. Cool. Um, 
And in your spare time, I mean, do you have any spare time uh, outside <laughs> of Chop Shop Studios? Um, well, how would you... Um, because I think a lot of what you do also, um, yeah, you need to find inspiration and, and motivation. And, and um, is, Do you have any particular methodologies to, to go about um, creating that um, kind of space for yourself? Yeah, that's... I mean, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Uh, both boys, both absolute terrorists um, <laughs> who are probably tearing up thy house right now because I've been sat in here chatting to you, which has been a very nice break. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's something I am a bit conscious of and, and worry about a bit. You know, I, I, I'm going to be 40 next year and I kind of feel myself aging away from um, being really plugged in. I think, I mean, I, I use Twitter a lot and I, I curate that really carefully. So I've got a bunch of you know, things like art and culture and music and just feeding the, the, the well of inspiration. I have that structured really nicely for that. Um, art in real life is super important to me so okay. and, and to my to my wife as well. So we always make time for just going and doing things like that to make sure we stay engaged and inspired, magazine subscriptions. But yeah, I don't know. There's a real trade-off, I think, as you, especially when you make the, wise or not decision to start having children uh, <laughs> that you know like I work I run the studio uh, I do the academy the chop chop academy um, and then everything that's left gets completely swallowed by the children so it's something that's been on my mind like am I still carving out the opportunity to be inspired by the unexpected mm -hmm. um, I'm doing my best but I don't necessarily feel I've, I've, I've cracked that but we were saying just before we started this conversation that as the children do get a bit older, you can start to see your time coming back. I mean, mm -hmm. I just, I used to, I started taking photos before the children were born and bought a nice camera and I was kind of delving into that world. And then when you have tiny children, you simply don't have hands free. You're carrying, you know, baby accoutrement <laughs> just takes up all your hands. And now that the youngest has become two, actually, there's not a baby anymore. And I've noticed that I've just got my hands back. Mm -hmm. So a few months ago, I picked up the big camera and I started taking photos again. And that, you know, tapping into that well of inspiration that comes from just looking at your environment because you're looking for photos to take and being therefore more engaged in the, the, with the creative part of you, is, is, is that's come back to me. And that's been really nice. Congratulations and <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'd like to say um, that it, it does it does get better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can feel it. I can see it. I can see it. I can see it. The camera thing actually is a really to me. I was like, oh, aha! I suddenly have a bit of of me uh, yeah. back, which is really Co nice. Coming out of that baby baby bubble um, yeah. and and resurfacing again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Hey. Thank you so much for, for taking a half hour out of your day to, to, to talk with me. And thanks, Tom. That was great. Cool. Absolutely. Cool. Have a great day. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Peter. Thank you for yeah. having me. It's a really fun conversation. We have reached the end of this Digital Experience podcast. Thanks for listening. For further information about us, please head over to weawondrous.com.